Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Hello, Liberty Road listeners. Welcome to another episode. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of talking with Silvana Ward-Durette. I'm excited to get into this conversation. She has launched an empire for children's clothing, and it'll be fun to unpack kind of the model that she started with and what they're doing now and how they've expanded, and also what it's like uh, as she enters into her 40s and um, looks at sort of her leadership style and running a business from a from a different side of life. Silvana, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we're so glad you're here. So tell us, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Masonette. Yeah. So Masonette is a children's marketplace. Um, we are geared towards sort of the, the modern millennial family, and we offer everything from um, accessories and apparel to cribs and furniture and everything in between for your for your children and for the children in your life and we really came to be because as a as a mom of 3 when i when i was just a mom of 2 i was having a really hard time as a working mom um sort of finding the time to shop for my children and and sort of my experience at the time was 100 web pages open because you know as we all know this is sort of the direct consumer age there are, are so many brands there's so much information I was having a really hard time finding the right things, spending a lot of time finding them, um, not knowing who to trust, and sort of thinking in my head, gosh, this is this is a problem, and it, it must not be just my problem. Yeah. Um, and so hypothesized that this was a problem all moms were having or, or whoever is in charge of purchasing for, for the family, and I ended up being right. You were right, for sure. I, I, I had said earlier before we got online that I wished that, and I was pronouncing it incorrectly, sorry, Maisonette was around when my kids were younger because it seemed as though you could find a million and one boutiques, but you couldn't find a trusted source for all of these beautiful things. Or your kids were all looking like the other kids when you took them to the park because there were just a few places where you could, where you could actually shop. So you were right. You were absolutely right. So you launched, you're the CEO and a co-founder of the company and launched with a partner. Tell us what it was like going into a partnership, launching something. Why did you choose that versus going alone? It's a great question. And I think if I were to, the number one thing I tell people who ask for my advice when they're heading into a startup is find a partner. And make sure it's somebody that you trust and that you've known a while. A lot of people sort of jump into things with somebody who has a similar idea, and then they realize yeah. it's not the right person. Um, luckily, my co-founder and I had worked together for about 15 years prior. 
at Vogue. And the reason being, I think, uh, first and foremost, is just it's hard. You know, starting starting something new is really hard, both emotionally, um, you know, physically it's taxing. And there's a lot of ups and downs. And so you need a person who I think is going through the exact same thing as you are to really commiserate and to kind of help you through it. I think that was the biggest, biggest thing I did right, which was, you know, really being able to lean on someone in the in the trying times, because there are many of them when you're when you're starting a business. So, you know, I think there's a lot of people who will tell you, well, what about the economics? You're 50-50, and what if something happens? You know, I think those are all things you'll figure out. But I think particularly for uh, a mom, right, who has... Yeah. Children they're raising um, and and sort of other obligations. You know, you you need a partner. You can't do it alone. And I think if you're a mom, everyone knows that you you need help, right? You can't do this alone. Yeah. And I think that's that's the, the fair for 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 starting your own business as well. I have to ask because as somebody who spent a fair bit of her career as a consultant helping partnerships navigate the equivalent of a divorce and um, the equivalent of a marriage therapy. What did you, in picking somebody that you had worked with for 15 years, obviously you knew them and you knew their strengths and you understood what you had to offer versus what they had to offer. But what would you give as advice to somebody considering a partnership saying, yes, I want to go into this, but I'm not really sure what to be looking for? Because often people, as you said earlier, dive in based on a similar interest, but perhaps their set of skills is exactly the same and that comes with problems or whatever. What's your advice for that? I think work ethic is really key. Mm. I think when you know someone is is always up to the task, is going to put in the same amount that you're putting in, that I think is the most important because I think there's just, you know, there's a lot of people who have different ideas of what it means to start something, right? Some people mm-hmm. just want to invest and sort of, and sort of, you know, be a cheerleader on the sidelines. But when you're an actual founder and a, and a, you know, a, a meaningful part of the business, you're doing the work, right? You're not just conceiving of it. And so I think that's a big piece of it is really making sure that you're aligned in kind of the the scope of work that you're both willing and the amount of time that you're both willing to put into it. You know, and I think obviously you you should it's like a marriage, right? You should talk yeah. about the finances, you should talk yeah. about the equity. All those things are important conversations to have up front because it gets messy, you know, it gets messy. And so I think as long as you're super transparent about those things going into it, and you know the person, like I really do believe you have to know the person because there's just a lot that comes out when when you're when you're under the gun. Um, yeah. then I think it's it's a good decision. Yeah, and I, I think nothing beats, and not all of us have the benefit of 15 years prior knowledge or prior relationship, but you have to have that trust that you have to be able to count on the other person. And sometimes that only comes with having a history with them. So I appreciate that advice. Tell us about your experience. You alluded to it a bit ago, but before Maisonette, what were you doing? I mean, I know you were doing Vogue. I've done a little bit of research and you mentioned it too, but tell us about that because I'd love to get into how that informed the work you're doing now. Yeah, no, um, it was my first and only job prior to Maisonette. So right, right out of college, started working as Anna Wintour's assistant and actually hired Luisana, who's my co-founder, under me. Um, and we, you know, from then on kind of have been working together ever since. But 
it was it was truly my business school. I think, you know, it was such a formative piece of my development as a businesswoman, particularly because of the access I was, you know, so blessed to have working closely with Anna and really understanding her process and seeing how she was really able to move an industry, right? I think for a huge company like Condé Nast, typically these businesses are are pretty bureaucratic. It's hard to get things done. And Anna really ran Vogue and still continues to like a startup, right? She was able to get things through. She wanted to move fast. She didn't take no for an answer. Like all of these are qualities that I think are really important to making something happen, making a business happen. Um, and and that was really my firsthand you know, experience with it, really just understanding that like she she was a force and she could do it. And if you, if you have a goal in mind and you have the right people with you, like you can make anything happen. So that was my first taste of kind of that entrepreneurial spirit and that longing to do something bigger and, and, and sort of on my own. Did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Not initially. You know, initially, I think like everyone who starts at Vogue, you kind of want to be Anna. You want to yeah. you want to be the fashion editor. You want to be going to Europe and, and going to the shows and, sure. and wearing all the beautiful clothes and all of those, all that glam, you know, that's all very much a part of it. Uh, yeah. You know, the other the other part of it is a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. All, all the things that come with a, with a job. And so ultimately, you know, I thought, well, I really am enjoying fashion. This is so this is so cool, and I'm so lucky to have this job, and I'm learning so much. Um, but it was really when Anna tapped me to lead the Met Gala, and then that sort of transitioned into um, kind of a business development strategic partnership role because I was tasked with, with coming up with sponsorship dollars effectively to mm-hmm. to 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 fund and support a lot of the initiatives that she was so passionate about. So things like, you know, obviously the Met Gala, um, she's super passionate about the Costume Institute, but her fashion fund that she's CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, all of these things that were really aimed at, you know, helping young designers, helping fashion in New York. You know, it was a very it was it was a very civic sort of passion she had for for New York City and, and the the fashion industry, even at large and globally. So, you know, because I was sort of in this position where I was making these partnerships happen, I was, you know, obviously along with her, I wouldn't say I was the sole person making these things happen, but certainly, um, you know, a piece of that and, and understanding the, the relationship between, you know, brand alignment and how, how you tell a story and how you bring a brand to life, um, all of those things really helped me kind of ultimately get excited about entrepreneurial you know, initiatives. And and actually, it was in 2008, when, you know, Anna's obviously a very politically minded woman, um, very supportive of the Democratic, you know, uh, party, she, Luisana, my co founder, and I um, kind of joined heads and decided to do this campaign for the Obama campaign, which was called Runway to Change. And we asked young designers to create effectively camp- campaign swag, right? For under $100, it was a huge success. It made, you know, a lot of money for the campaign. And we iterated on that. Uh, Luisana and I sort of brought it into the the fashion industry. We, you know, along with, with Anna's support and obviously, yeah. you know, partnership. But that was the first, in, like, uh, entrepreneurial business. I was going to say, it was like you've been in an incubator under, you know, with the support and the scaffolding of something, an institute that could get attention and get you seen and get you connected. But I need to say this because 
you were there for a long time, which I have to believe isn't the case for a lot of people who, who are at Vogue for any period of time. And you saw those opportunities and took advantage of them. So you were able to use it as a springboard for what you were doing now, because it's like you recognized each thing as somewhat entrepreneurial in its own right. And we're able to step into that. I also, just a quick shout out, I saw the documentary um, about the Met Gala. What's it called? The first Monday in May. The first Monday in May. Beautiful. And so I got a little glimpse of some of the work that you were doing and uh, recommend it. It's a really, it's a wonderful piece to watch. Also, I have to ask, because you were sort of tutored and mentored and molded by a woman, Forget that it's Anna Wintour for a second, if we can. I wonder how much that helped to shape, well, I can do this. Like, I wonder if you had worked for a man, if the entrepreneurial thing would have felt so accessible to you. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I think she has been such a trailblazer for women, particularly in New York City, particularly in the fashion industry. And she's gotten, you know, some flack for kind of her you know, for the way that she rules, you know, and the way that she um, leads. And I have always said, if she were a man, no one would look twice, right? And I think you have to be aggressive, particularly at the level that she's at. I mean, she's, you know, every, every, most every other person in her stratosphere is a man of of, of great power, right? And so, um, because she transcends the fashion industry, you know, she's, she's speaking with, heads of state. And I mean, it's beyond fashion. So I 100% attribute it to her being a woman and a woman who has not been afraid to speak her mind and to push back and to be aggressive. And a lot of times that's what it takes. Um, And I think it's, that's less so now. I think she's, you know, there's women like her have paved the way for us. It's much more, it's much easier to do that today, right? Than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We're talking about it more, there's just more focus on it, and there's a f- long way to go. But I think that has has had a huge impact on me in particular. I appreciate you saying that because I've heard people, and I think they are well-intended, but they talk about sort of how we are pioneering things. And I think actually not. We are standing on the shoulders and the backs of so many women that have come before us. We just didn't know their stories. We didn't hear their stories. People weren't telling those stories. But we are not. We are not the first generation to have tried yeah, to make uh, th- this push or this way. I want to get into a little bit about, so you leave Vogue and kind of your your story of launching this brand, this brand that was going to help you as a busy mom to shop for your children. What was the first iteration of Maisonette? What was the first sort of, this is what we're creating? You know, I think we always had a grand plan. Yes, it was about kind of the shopping experience, the e-commerce solution, the online solution, right, to to sort of help parents to aggregate it, to centralize the products, to bring everything that you've ever wanted for your children in one place and make it super easy to get those things, right? So if you think about every category in your adult life, right, whether it's for your dogs or your groceries or your clothing, there is one place or several places in, in in a lot of these categories where you go to an online destination, it's a platform, it has everything you need in that category, and it makes it super easy for you to find those things, right? 
that didn't exist in in the children's space, right? The space was really crowded by legacy players. It was sort of the Carters and the children's places of the world. And there really had been no innovation and certainly not around kind of this new demographic of parents who were very different than our parents. You know, my my parents were, there was one crib you could buy. There was pink is for girl and blue is for boy. And like, you're basta, you're done. You know, like that was it. Today, you have thousands of choices and so many opinions, and you have this parent that cares about everything, right? It's not just about what organic food to feed them. It's about what kind of materials are in their onesie. If there's lead paint in their crib, you know, what kind of play mat they're playing on. You know, it, the, the, the purchase funnel is full of all of these questions and nuances and, and worries and anxieties about how best to raise your child. And so we really wanted to create a, a safe space, sort of a, a tried and true, tested, vetted, curated place where you felt really comfortable buying from, right? You you knew yeah. that somebody had done the work for you. You didn't have to go around the internet listening to a million mommy blogs who you had no idea which one to trust. <laughs> and you yeah. could be you could be you could be sort of the parent you wanted to be on our site. So that was that was the dream, right? And I think you start small and so, you know, we started very much like Farfetch. So it was we were working primarily with boutiques. So we had about 15 boutiques at launch in 2017. And through those boutiques, we were able to, you know, represent a lot of different brands because each boutique buys at least 60 brands, right? So we we had a nice amount of brands on site pretty quickly. And at the time, we were just focused on apparel. And very quickly, we realized that there was this need and that we, if we were going to be a, re, a true utility to this parent, a true resource, we, we needed to expand categories, we needed to expand price points. And so in the last five years, we're five years old this month. Congratulations. Thank That's you. It's huge. crazy. I didn't, I mean, my, my five-year-old is five today and I didn't even have her when I launched Maison Out, which is so weird <laughs> to think. She's the marker. Yeah. That, that's how you can always tell how old yeah. you are. I love it. So uh, really quick before you move on, for people who don't know, they know Farfetch, but they don't understand the model, I want you to just clarify. So you're working with these boutiques. You're representing them digitally. The consumer has access to all of these brands on your site. And then the boutiques are willing to work with you because you're opening up the marketplace to them. Correct. They're in some small town, wherever. Exactly. And you mentioned this earlier on, but you know, the the way that you would shop for your children was through boutiques in your town. If you're lucky enough to be in a town where there's a boutique, right? That's right. So the idea of Farfetch was really bringing, you know, boutiques from Europe to sort of the the comfort of your couch in Arkansas, right? You could you could shop all these places online and have access to all this sort of unique assortment through Farfetch. And so um a marketplace, you know, obviously gives you access to a wide variety of assortment. And I think the sort of the disconnect is it's not like a true e-commerce experience where you order from Nordstrom and they send you everything in one box, right? It's very much, it's it's more similar to an Amazon where you get things from different places around the world. So they come right. in different boxes. So if you ordered 10 things from Farfetch or from Maisonette, you're going to get 10 boxes maybe, you know? So the post-purchase experience after you buy is a little bit different than you would expect from, you know, a traditional e-commerce. Uh, but I think today, you know, even in the last five years, that's become a lot more commonplace and and understood. And particularly if you feel like you're getting the value of kind of that unique access to things, you're willing, you're, you're okay with that. And that's really how we evolved, right? That, that model has been a huge success for us because 
we have no inventory risk, like we're not buying the inventory. And we are able to onboard now, now we work primarily with brands, so we, we have sort of abandoned, not abandoned, but we just, we, we're not focused yeah. on the, the boutiques as much. We go straight to the brand so that we get more inventory, better selection, more depth of selection, you know, all the sizes versus sort of some sizes here and there. And now, you know, it's, it's really easy for us to get a lot of brands on board because we don't have to go through the process of buying, buying the inventory and then waiting for it to get shipped to us and then putting it in our warehouse. And then, you know, it's just a lot faster. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more of a, a modern model. I was going to say it probably took time for brands to understand from, a, you know, their manufacturers, their wholesalers, like, how do we do this? Why would we do this? That's not what we've done over the years to then see this is how we're going to stay alive. This is that we can't rely only on the retailer. And also it's, you know, in terms of you're able to take some of that margin out by not working with the retailer, working directly with the wholesaler and then pass it on to the consumer. So I'm sure it helped to change internally how you were looking at doing business and what you were offering to the end user. Yeah, it's a better deal for the for this for the vendor as well, right? For the brand, so it's a yeah. better deal than wholesale. So they're getting they're getting more margin as well, which is really you know we we started as this marketplace for the consumer, right? We were trying yeah. to solve the problem for the consumer, but what we realized in building the business is that we were a true partner to these brands. Who you know our brands are not kind of the Gucci's and the Dolce and Gabbana's of the world. They're they're this sort of small to medium sized business that is having a really hard time connecting to this customer, right? They don't have the marketing dollars to do that. They don't have a platform to launch on, or at least prior Maisonette they didn't. And so we have become this launch pad for small brands and small businesses to really connect with this customer and be able to scale their business in a way that they probably wouldn't be able to alone. So that's been really fun for us to see, right? We have we have seen these brands grow with us, and it, it, like that's that's kind of the the great pleasure of this. We we're doing this like the the tides are rising together. How do you ensure that your brand is kind of intact when the consumer is receiving something directly from the manufacturer? Like you guys have a very specific brand, and it's it's elevated. You may hear my children. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. It's real. <laughs> they just literally, it's like right there, it's right there time to get home from school. Can you guys close my door, please? Okay, close my door, please. Thank you. Sorry. No, it's okay. I love it. We're keeping it real here at Liberty Road. Um, no, it's okay. I believe me, I've had many of those moments. But just going back to like, how do we, how do you assure that the brand is intact, the brand experience? That was my question. When they're getting it from directly from the manufacturer, was that something you guys had to overcome? Oh yeah, and it's still it still continues to be a challenge. I think the biggest challenge with the marketplace is that it's not it's not your brand in the packaging, right? And there are things you can certainly do, right? So we include our tissue paper and a, and a receipt holder and all those things. But when it's not coming from your warehouse and it's not your box and it's not your tape and you know, like it's hard to to make sure that brand experience is passed through to the customer. There's a number of ways to go about it. I think there's a, a lot of big marketplaces. So if you look at an Amazon or you look at a Walmart, for example, they start these fulfilled buy programs where they start actually taking in the inventory, especially around you know items that you know sell quickly that will you'll sell quickly. You're not going to hold them forever. You, you start to get data on all this stuff, right? Which is yeah. so interesting. And so that is a, that is a route we're, we're thinking about going on some of the, on some of our assortments so that you have some things in one box, right? You have 
have that beautiful box with our logo and our print, and it's exactly what you want it to be. Um, And some of it is just, it is a little bit, to your point, the uh, the way of the future where it's a little bit more anonymous and and the way that they get the brand experience is through the customer service experience, through yeah. we they track the package through us, we have the shipping information, we're helping them make purchases, all of those things yeah. sort of have to be really good because of the yeah. post-purchase experience. Yeah, exactly. When we shop on Amazon, we expect it quick. We expect a kind of easy return policy, but we don't expect it beautifully packaged. So there is this sort of trade-off. Having said that, you guys have expanded the brand and you talked about as you're in this fifth year, how much you've grown. And I want you specifically, I'm going back to Maison Me, Maison Me Baby and Neon Rebels. Talk about that expansion and what those other offerings are. Yeah. So we have, um, we took a little bit of time to launch um, our private labels. And that was pretty intentional because we wanted to understand sort of what our customer wanted, right? They, and, and like I said earlier, you know, the, the data is, is sort of the rich part of this. I'm so it's sorry. I'm on an interview. And I, I mean, me and okay. Rosie okay. play in my room? Yes, that's fine. Please close my door. Told you. Sorry. Oh, my God. This is uh, truly, this is the worst it's ever been, and I'm glad we're, like, on live. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. What Actually, what's going to happen is people are going to listen, and they're going to be like, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe the chaos around me is a part of it. So it, you, really what you're doing is inspiring people. Anyway, so the data becomes super important in these businesses because you start to see trends, right? You start to understand in a way that like, you know, when we were shopping, when we were kids and our parents were were, were, were trying to buy us things, it's like it's a different world, right? It's the wild, wild west and you're learning all these things about your customer and um, and so you can really provide them with exactly what they want. And that's how we thought about private label with Maison Me and Neon Rebels. What we saw was people... There was um, sort of a gap in the market for more approachable prices for everyday wear, right? So we had all these brands who were beautiful and, you know, they're not the Gucci's of the world, but they're still, you know, they're still a little expensive, right? And and so we wanted our parents to have an option where you could buy a pair of leggings that you know they're going to run into the ground within three weeks, and then you can buy another one and you're okay with that because they're only $10 or $14. You know, like you shop for your children the way that you shop for yourself, which is kind of high-low, right? You know, I shop at Zara. I shop at all of those places. And then you invest in kind of the pieces that you want to wear to a holiday party or on a trip or whatever it is. It's very similar in that way. And so we really just wanted to give our parents that option. Um, and it's done so well for us. I mean, it, it's easy. It's it's pretty. So like you, you feel comfortable as a parent sort of sending your kid to school in a pair of sweatpants because they're a great color or they're a great fit. And and you're equally as happy to send them after school to a birthday party because it, it sort of, it does both. Yeah. And it builds loyalty because if, for example, what we were talking about before, if you can't have a full brand experience when it's being shipped from a manufacturer, you can have it when you're talking about your private label. You guys can offer that. And then the loyalty that's built because of the pricing is they're coming back more and more. So they're having, it's it's like any relationship, right? 
You're you're 100% right. It's exclusive to us. They have to come to you for it. It's a great product. It is it is our brand, you know, encapsulated in a in a piece of clothing, right? You get that full experience. And it's a good value, right? So we're we're these things are being made with the understanding that we want them to last as long as possible. Right. What is the difference between the brands? Okay, so Maison Me is, I would say, we call it more more parent-driven, right? These are the things that, you know, it's sort of zero to six, zero to seven, right when your kid is not making the decisions <laughs> effectively, right. but is fine with you putting something on them that, like, you know, maybe it's not exactly what they want, but they turn seven and they're like, they have opinions now. Yeah. And so enter Neon Rebels, which is a very kid-centric brand. It's very much about self-expression. It's about mixing and matching. There's no there's no rules, right? It's It's all about kind of... Whatever they want to throw on, it all looks great together. Even when it doesn't match, it's sort of this really fun line, and it's a little bit geared to an older kid, right? It's like seven to twelve, um, and it can. And, and I think what has happened with our with our parents is that they're growing with us, right? So when I started Maisonette, I had a zero year old, and now I have a five year old, and a seven year old, and a nine year old, and. I have to keep dressing them too. So right. <laughs> we keep <Right>. expanding. <laughs> we keep keep expanding with them. And I my team is sort of rolls their eyes at me every time. I'm like, Henry, I can't buy anything for Henry on site. And they're like, okay, yeah. here comes another private okay, label. Here we go. We've got another private label. I know, all the way to college. I yeah, exactly. I can't wait to see that. Well, it's also smart because the let's assume that the company will be around forever. The kids now have a say in what they're going to wear. They're having an experience with your brand. And so fast forward to when they're having children, it's something that becomes familiar to them. So whether you built that legacy piece in or not, it's really smart. Talk to me a little bit about as you've grown and as you've expanded, now that you are squarely at 40, what are some of the things that you look at and you say, based on my age, my wisdom, what I've learned, what I've gleaned, I would have done that slightly differently? Yeah. I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> because um, I think there's, uh, I think most of it is sweating the little stuff, right? I think as a career person, in your 20s and your 30s, you're just striving. You're, you just want to do it the best way you can. And, yeah. and you're like still kind of searching for your thing. And is this my career choice? Is this the rest of my life? You know, you're you're in your head about all these things. And like you turn 40 and you're sort of like, just relax. You know, like it it it's all going to come together and you have time to make these decisions. And, you know, I didn't start this business until I was 36 or 35. Yeah. So you have this... You have this idea as as a twenty you know five year old thirty year old that like you've got to figure this out like everyone has to figure it out and like things are moving quickly and if, if you're not a twenty four year old and like founding Facebook then you're way behind you know and I think I would just say like take your time you have time and it is so great to have a you know a, a plethora of experiences because you never know which decision and which which sort of path you take will lead to the thing that you ultimately love and for me it was totally switching from fashion to a more business oriented you know job producing parties i mean hello to finding my true passion which was building things and building a business and that around something that i was really passionate about so yeah just don't sweat the small stuff it's funny that keeps coming up. We did another interview with Jenny of Jenny's Ice Cream, and she too was yeah, like, I love that ice cream. Her, uh, isn't that so good? Um, and I was asking her something similar, uh, and she said, You know, just I, I wish I could tell every woman essentially, take your time. And then I had said to her, That's so funny. I wrote a post about 
Like if we just could pass on to the next generation, you've got time, build and continue to iterate. And then if I think of your own situation, like there was not a single moment wasted at Vogue. I'm sure you lean on everything that you've learned on a very regular basis, which whether it was something specific that you did, like the Met Gala, or just the mentorship that you gained from having a, a, a really strong and powerful woman model that for you. So we've got time. I think you're so right. Every piece of it informs who you are and what you become and how you lead and how you think about solving problems. You know, I think yeah. I think back to some of the most random things <laughs> when I'm yeah. problem solving with 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 my exec team and and it's truly an experience I had when I was 26, you know, in a showroom or something, you know, ridiculous, but you it all shapes you, and it's so important that you go through that because I see so many young people who are ready to be, you know, a billionaire. You know, they want to be the yeah. unicorn business, and you're sort of like, you have so much to learn. <laughs> and by the way, if you're one of those people, amazing, I'm obsessed yeah, with God you. Bless like, you. you're yeah, sure. that's totally great too, and 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 you know, like more power to you. But I think it there is a lot to learn, and there's a lot of time to learn it. And I think you become better at what you do ultimately by taking that time. Agreed. Agreed. Hence the name Liberty Road, because it's, it's, a, it's a traveled sort of thing. I want to get into, this is a kind of huge business that you've built. And you said even when you guys started, you had sort of a big picture in mind. No one likes to ask this question, but I'm going to like, talk to me about the money. Did you guys raise capital? How did you go about supporting this vision? Was it savings? Like, what did you do? So it's a question that I think every entrepreneur has to make, to sort of be confronted with, I guess. And in and, and, uh, early days, we had a lot of people who said, just be, you know, a small shop online. It's so hard to raise money. Then you get into this whole treadmill of the VC world, and it's so hard, and you'll never see your kids again, and you'll never see your husband, and it's going to be hard, and it's, you know, you don't want this life. And, and I actually want to say that Yes, the, for some people, that's the right path, right? You know, if you're if you're looking for sort of that type of sailing into the sunset and having like a really enjoyable and great business, like th there are many businesses like that, and that's great. I think for for Luisana and I, I think we really saw that there was this massive opportunity in this market, and we sort of felt like if we rested on our laurels, no one else was going to do it, and we had to do it, and it was going to be hard. And, and all of those things were maybe true. By the way, none of those things were true. So when people tell you that, it's not true. I, I okay. love my husband. Okay. We are never been better. My kids, I mean, I, I found the best work-life balance. None of that happened. Yeah, everyone, you heard it here. Yeah. You heard it here. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, you have to make a decision to do that because it is it is a treadmill. The, the, the one truth of it is it's a treadmill. When you decide to raise money, you're raising money for the rest of your life, basically, until you become profitable. And until you sort of own your own destiny. And I think from a hindsight position, I would still do it again. I think the the amount of mentorship, um, the amount of institutional knowledge I gained from my investors, having yeah. been a first-time founder, first-time CEO, all these first times was invaluable, truly invaluable. And yes, you know, we we have to we have to continue to fundraise and 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 knock wood will will be in a position in a few years where we'll be profitable and on to great, great things. But I think um, you know, it is a it is a it is a bumpy road. Fundraising is not easy. You are selling your soul over and over again to a mostly male 
demographic and, and industry who have a very hard time, particularly in the children's space, understanding the real problem. You know, they're, they're typically not the ones who are buying for their family. They don't understand why this is a big deal. You know, there's a lot of kind of like, but don't kids just throw up on their clothes? Like, why, why is this, why is this yeah. a thing? And you're sort of like, you have no idea. You have no idea. Go home and talk to your wives exactly. or girlfriends or, you know, adult daughters and they'll tell you. And literally, we have a lot of investors who come back and are like, oh, my God, I, I went home and talked to my wife, and now I understand, yeah. and let's talk more. <laughs> but, you know, I have so many thoughts on fundraising. It is it is tough. It is not for the faint of heart. It is truly you are day in and day out kind of, you know, you're a salesperson, and you're you're getting a lot of rejection. You know, it's a lot of – you get a lot of no's before you get the yeses. And that can be hard, and I think particularly for female founders. You know, I think yeah. we've seen it everywhere, but, you know, 2% of the funding this year went to female founders out of a crazy amount of money. I think it was like $300, $300 billion yeah. or something. Yeah, more than ever. There's been more money than ever. Yeah, no. Two questions on that. The fact that you're kind of on this hamster wheel of having to continue to raise money. One, thank you for telling the truth. Two, does it get easier? I'm not saying... Well, maybe the rejection, but also maybe the the fact that others have invested in you. Is it easier for people to then say yes? Is it easier for people to see you as credible once you got those initial yeses? Yeah, it absolutely is. You need those champions, you know, on your side. And I think that it's a huge reason why people look at us, right? They, you know, it's like anything else. It's a resume. And, you know, it's it's a marker of success. It's a marker of, you know, it's just a barometer of sort of who who you're in bed with, really. And and it, that that gives other investors confidence. Um, yeah. So it's super important. I think it's gotten more diversified. I think when we, you know, even in the last five years, I think there's so much there's so much venture capital now. And it used to be kind of these like 10 to 20 big players. And it's like, if, if you didn't have Sequoia, then you were, you know, <laughs> you were Why dead in the water. Yeah. But I think now there's so many new investors. There's so many different ways of funding businesses. There's so many more family offices. I mean, a lot, everyone wants to get into venture because it's exciting and, and they want a piece of that, like, you know, that, that magic that really happens with, with startups. And so I would say, don't get discouraged by the no's because if you have, you know, if you have a good product and you have product market fit and you're, you're determined, like you will find your capital. You just have to keep working on it and you can't get discouraged. It's just, it is what it is. And it's the same for everyone. You know, you hear these stories about these unicorn companies that are, you know, they're raising all this money. It's never easy. It's not like you know, they go out to one person and they're like, cha-ching, you're all done. Here's $300 million. <laughs> it's I never like that. But it is, it is a process. It's a process. I have to believe that as hard as it is, each time it's helping to sort of shape you as a company, shape you as a leader, shape you in your case as a CEO. And so I, I hesitate to say this because it may not be worth the work, but I wonder if you were to go out and raise money and in the end, you know, nothing came your way, if you're still better for it. Yes. I mean, the, the, what I think is so humbling about fundraising is that no matter who you are, you're sort of on a, you know, and I, and I hesitate to say level playing field because I do think as a female founder, there is a disadvantage, yeah. um, particularly around numbers and, you know, the amount of times I've said, I've, I've heard someone say, but who, but who handles your numbers? And I want to be like, 
<laughs> um, wow. So I think, you know, no matter who you are or where you come from or who your connections are, you know, you're you're pitching, you're 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 just trying to get a deal done, you know? And I think yeah. it forces you a to be really good at presenting, right? You get a lot of at bats. You get a lot of you get much more comfortable speaking to rooms of really big, scary, important people. Um, and you do that over and over again to the point where you're sort of like, okay, I got, I know how to do this now. You know, I can do this, and it's it's important to be able to articulate a point and to make a strong argument and to be confident in a room and and be able to speak to people who you're afraid of. <laughs> I think. It, it is a an hugely accretive skill to have in your arsenal. Sure, and one that, again, benefits the company in the end. Like, even if you chose to go out on your own. Last thing about raising capital, I hear a lot of people say, I'd rather do it on my own. I want to have 100% equity in the company. And something that I have said to them is, 100% is great, but 100% of what? Versus, you know, to use an extreme 1% of something massive or 10% of something massive. Is that, was that sort of your approach? I remember my, my husband says the same thing. He says, you know, hundred percent is zero is zero. So yeah, I think you have to make sacrifices, right? And I think for me, it's always been about what, what do you want this business to be? And if you want it, if you want to create, you know, a meaningful presence and, and a sort of industry changer, type business, you, you're going to have to make sacrifices. It's impossible to do it on your own. It's totally possible to, to build businesses on your own, to bootstrap and to like, you know. But not at the level that you guys were going after and within the time frame. Yeah. Yes. It just takes longer. Yeah. And and if you have the time to do it, great. You know, I think the the fear is that like somebody else is going to do it before you and they're going to do it at, at, at scale and then it's and then you've lost your opportunity. Um, yeah, you are preaching to the choir. I understand. This is this is awesome. You know, you you are just turning or have just turned 40. So you are just now in that place where women, friends of yours might say, you know, I have an idea, but I, you know, I'm in my 40s. All of my like, friends say this, by the way. Yeah. And what do you want to say to them? Like, why is it not too late? Why is now the time or do you think that is the case? I mean, it's I truly never too late. I mean, I, yeah. I can't express that more. I think the wisdom that you gain in in the 40 years prior is is building towards a moment. And if you want to do something, it means you're ready to do something. And I yeah. think there's no truer saying than where there's a will, there's a way. I think yeah. it really does not matter how old you are. It, all it matters if you have the stamina. Like the stamina is what you need. And I think particularly women in their 40s when, you know, it's a time when, you you know, your children are somewhat grown, right? You they're, they're at school. You have more time. So a lot of, you know, I have so many friends who had their children and then didn't want, you know, wanted to stay home with them and, and get them through school, and that, which is amazing. And I, you know, I think that's, yeah. that's a, one of the hardest jobs in the world. And now they're sort of like coming up for air. And I'm sort of like, it's perfect. You have time. Do it now, you know? Yeah. And I... And I think there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of being out of the game and like not having the chops and not having the network. And it, it takes six months to get back into it. You know, you you just have to start. You just have to start or else you never will. And there are, there are opportunities. There are people to connect with. There are networks more than ever. 
that's available. I'm in the next decade older than you. And I have the same thing with my friends who are starting to, you know, starting the empty nesting and saying, like, I'm, I'm out, you know, I've timed out. And I'm like, so we're living longer. So basically, you're telling me, let's say, let's say you've got until 90. So 40 years, you're just sitting, what are you gonna do? Yeah, <laughs> like, there's you have so much to offer. And and I say that not just for for profit business businesses. I say that about starting a nonprofit, writing a book, you know, I say this over and over, my audience is tired of hearing me, but you know, producing a documentary, uh, wh- whatever. Start Invest becoming an investor. Fresh. Yeah. And becoming an investor, which we're seeing more and more of. So um, at all levels, by the way, you don't need to be a, a millionaire yourself to be able to invest in other businesses. So I appreciate you saying that because I do think the time is now. It's it, always it now. Is, it's not too late. So I want to kind of wrap up this part of the conversation um, with what has Maisonette taught you about yourself? It has taught me that I'm a lot more competitive than I thought. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, and I think that's okay. I think there's a lot of like shame around being ambitious as, or being competitive or wanting to win for a female, right? It's that's, that's a man, that's a man's world. And like, as a female, yeah. you should be, you know, only empathetic and only want, you know, and I think it's yeah. okay to want to win and to succeed and to work really hard to do that. And I didn't realize how much I wanted that until I was doing this. I think particularly when you're working for other people, you're working to the next promotion or the next thing. It's like as soon when you start something on your own, it's like it's your child. It's like it's like having yeah. a child, and you're fighting for that as much as you would fight for for your your blood, you know. And I think that is really something to be celebrated and is not shameful. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Do you have daughters? I have two daughters and a son, yeah. Okay, so I'm so glad that your daughters get to see that and hopefully model that in the same way that you got to see it yourself and that your son sees it in a way that helps him to respect and work well, play well with other women. Because I think you're right, it's something that we don't celebrate and it's something that not only is it shameful, but somehow it reduces us, reduces our femininity. And you use the word empathetic. Why can't you be both? You can why be can't both. you be yeah, why can't you be both? We are we are capable of being both. Thank you for that. Thank you for t- I've learned so much. This has been great. But before I let you go, we've got something called our fast five. So I'm gonna ask you these quick questions and just whatever comes to mind. What's a favorite hack or practice, a book, or even a brand that um you have come to love and would like to share with us that really is around kind of entering the beginnings of midlife for you? Honestly, <laughs> it, yeah. seems, Honestly. it seems um, it seems really silly, but it, it's, it's actually being selfish. It's taking the time to, to be selfish every day for yourself because I think as women, we're trained to caretake everyone else in our lives. Um, and in order to caretake other people, you need to caretake yourself. It's just, it's, there's, it's, it's, there's no, there's nothing more important, I think, to your own mental health, to your family's health and stability to, to really be selfish once a day. Yeah. Yeah. There, we need to come up with another word so that we do away with the, the weird. I know, um, right? I know, but it's true. Have you have to just yeah. prioritize yeah. yourself, you know? No. It's true. And and the cliche of if you are well taken care of, 
then you can take care of others is also very true. But I think we need to be enough. We, it's it's enough reason to take care of ourselves. I, I think we need to stop seeing it as a means to an end necessarily, which is part of the problem. And then we talked about Jenny's briefly. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Okay, this is, it's not Jenny's, but it is, then, okay. <laughs> it's Haagen-Dazs coffee. I grew up on Haagen-Dazs. Mine too. It's Haagen-Dazs coffee. There is nothing better in the world. Right? There's just nothing better. Every other coffee ice cream does not even compare. I won't even try them anymore. I know. My favorite is the win is if I can find them in those little teeny tiny containers. Just perfect exactly size. Yes. Also, there's the almond crunch popsicle, the chocolate covered one with the coffee inside, which is delicious. See, d- that's the second piece of breaking news you've yeah. given me today. Yeah, so. Right. Okay, so if I raise money, I'm not going to end my marriage, and <laughs> there is a haagen ice cream with almonds. Okay, in a few words, what is sort of exciting to you about this stage of your life and kind of the this, this moment in time for you as you, again, enter midlife? I feel like it's being settled, you know? I feel like you are on this on this sort of like treadmill of life in your 20s and 30s, and in your 40s, you're kind of like okay, like, I kind of know who I am. I kind of know what makes me tick. Like, I'm okay with the good, the bad, and the ugly. You just, there's just a, there's just a piece that I feel like you, you achieve. And let's be honest, we're all still, we're all still trying to better ourselves and, and, and figure it all out. But I think there is this kind of settlement that is like, I'm okay. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm enough. I'm okay. Everything's going to be okay. I can figure th- I can figure anything out, you know. Yeah, there's a new trust in yourself for sure. It's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking I felt the same way in my 40s and it was somewhere probably around 52 which we were also in COVID. So maybe this had something to do with it, but I felt an unsettling and I felt a new stirring. And I don't know if it was a result of that or if it was just kind of a reset on what's next. So enjoy in your (laughs) 40s that because maybe this is coming or maybe it was just me. I don't know. If you were to give your younger self advice from from where you are now, what would you say to her about when you're 40X? Like what's the advice you would give her about entering into midlife? I think that things are like things are enough. You know, like I think there's this 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 need for more, right? Like for the next thing to like, you're always like graduating to the next thing, whether it's like, you know, a promotion or it's like you're going to have kids or like you're getting married, then you want to have kids. You know, you're always, there's always another thing yeah. that you're striving towards and that like it's never enough. And then there's the next thing and then it's the next thing. And it's sort of like, there's a point where it becomes enough, you know? Like, I think right now, like, I feel full. I feel like I have my business, and I and there's much more I want to do in my life, and that does not mean yeah. that there, I don't have moments where I'm like, what am I doing? And, yeah. <laughs> you know, moments of doubt and, and all of those things and anxiety and all, you know, but I think there is this feeling of, like, you're going to get to a point where, like, you're going to feel pretty happy, and that's okay. Like, it's okay to not have the next, to have to find the next thing, you know? And if you want to be a mom forever, great. That's enough, you know? If you want to start a business, do it, you know? I think it's just sort of like this, this understanding that, like, you don't have to keep, the the grass is not always greener. It's not, you know, there's no silver bullet. It's just, you're going to be okay with what you have. I love this, I feel full. Like, 
let's hashtag that. Like, let's, let, you know, because then that makes us think about, it's sort of this grat- this idea of practicing gratitude. Like, what do I have? I have um, so much. And, you have so much in yeah. your lives at any given point, and it's the right thing for that point in your life, you know? Yeah. You had some good parents, I can tell. That's awesome. And then the last question, Silvana, as you have sort of considered this road that you've gone on, in in particular with Maisonette, what has it done to liberate you? You mentioned earlier what what you learned from it, but what has it done to liberate in you or you yourself? I think the idea of kind of writing your own story, you know, like I think when you do anything on your own that is yours, you're building it out of what you want in life. You know, you're building it from your own values, from your own experiences. And so it turns into like everything you've ever wanted. You know, you're sort of writing yeah. your own story. And I think that is liberating about working for yourself and doing something on your own. It's it's you, you answer to yourself and you're and to your own, you know, ambitions and whatever drives you to the to, to succeed. And I think that's really empowering and really liberating. And, you know, that's a part of me feeling full. It's sort of like, this is what I've been working towards. And I feel like this is what I always wanted to do. That's awesome. You have been such a pleasure to talk with. You have been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate your honesty. I feel like so many people will learn. I mean, you're one of the few voices, honestly, I've heard that's been so while being honest, but so pro raising money and have been able to really dispel the truth or the 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 non-truths around some of that mm-hmm. but also i appreciate you talking about your ambition and yeah. i think yeah. when we hear these things from other women then we can sort of own them a little bit more for ourselves so thank you yeah. for that liberty listeners thank you for taking time to hang out with silvana and i today and i know you're going to enjoy this conversation and we will talk to you next week thanks so much Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flower.